last week <clears throat> we mentioned near the end of class that John was starting to make a transition in verses 27 and 28 of chapter 2 where he was finishing a discussion that he'd been talking about, but talking, I guess, about the fellowship, the fellowship between God and us, the fellowship between us and our fellow brothers and sisters, the fellowship with the Son. And in the last couple of verses of chapter 2, he started to shift his attention, kind of change that topic or change that basis that he was referring back to, to our relationship with the Father. And he starts to discuss, uh, and most of what we'll talk about this morning, <clears throat> we'll be talking about the sonship to the Father, how we are children of God. So we'll see as we go through these verses that John... Um, beginning in verse 229 and going all the way through the end of what we're talking about this morning, verse 10 of chapter 3, is going to be drawing on a series of pictures of two groups of people, the first being those who do right and then those who keep on sinning. We'll see him contrast those who live in Christ and those who have neither seen or known him. We'll look at the contrast between those who do what is right and those who do what is sinful. And then the final contrast is those who do not continue to sin or those who have stopped sinning and those who do not do right and do not love the brothers. And so we'll see these contrasts, kind of antithetical statements. Tim was talking about parallelism in his class the other night. And it's very similar to that. You'll see the good side of the coin and then you'll see the bad side of the coin. I don't know if heads or tails, which one is good or bad, but this coin has a good side and a bad side and we're going to look at that. By chapter 3, verse 8, the groups are more closely defined and they're identified as the families of two people. We'll see these two families that are talked about, the children of God and the second one being the children of the devil or the children of Satan. We'll talk about how our family is determined by our relationship with the Father and the way we live. And we'll see a warning against, um, or, or John warning against and teaching against false teachers. John wants us to pay attention to our outward behavior because of our actions, our fruit is part of what reveals who we are. It's a big part of what reveals who we are, but it also reveals whom we belong to. Um, Jesus warned in his sermon on the mount, in his sermon on the mount in Matthew seven fifteen and sixteen. He said, "Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits." So we'll see this idea of fruits, the product of how people act and behave, being related to where their allegiances are, um, who they follow, who they have sonship with. So we'll pick up this morning in verse 1 through 3 of 1 John 3. And let's read it and then we'll get into the lesson. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. 
Beloved, we are God's children now, and what will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. So there's a lot in those three verses. Let's jump into them and talk about it. So John begins this passage by saying, see. And the word here in Greek is idete, and it means to behold, to take notice, to be impressed with. It's not a casual glance at something. It's you're studying something. You're looking into it deeply. You're getting to its foundation, its roots. You're, you're, you're looking at it to learn. And John says to look at what God has blessed you with. Look at how much he loves you. Look at the manner or the kind of his love. He has called us his children, and we've arise, arrived at this designation because of his love for us and through his son. That's the first point John wants to make to us, is that we are children of God, and we're children of God through Christ. We know John 3.16 very well. We know it says that God sent his only son to save the world, to die for all of mankind. But when we're talking about this sonship, this, this being a child of God, being loved enough that he calls us his children, I think an appropriate passage to read is in Ephesians. So if you've got your Bibles, flip to Ephesians. And we're going to look quickly at Ephesians 1. And we're going to look at um, verses 3 through 6 of Ephesians 1. And it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So Paul, as he's writing to the church at Ephesus, is, is dealing with this same kind of topic where he's talking about sonship or, or being children of God. And he just comes out in verse 5 and he said he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. It's exactly what John is saying here, is that through Christ we become children of God. His love is free to all. It is great, it's precious, it's undeserved, and it's eternal. And the phrase that is used, what kind, so he says in, in um, 1 John 3, I think it's in verse 2, where he says what kind of love, 3 verse... Well, I don't. Oh, it's in verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That phrase, what kind of, is the, frame, the same phrasing in the original language that's used in Matthew 8, 27, when amazed by Jesus' power at, at calming the storm, his disciples said, and the men, or the, the writer says, and the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this? that even the winds obey him. That idea of what kind of is the same phrasing that is talking about Christ with what sort of man is this. So John affirms that we're children of God. 
And John states that the world does not know us because it did not know him. And referring back to God, referring to Christ. The world does not know the Father, and so it does not recognize his children. When you read that term, it makes sense when you start thinking about your own life. Um, anyone that knows my dad knows in a few minutes of talking with me that I'm probably my father's son. I walk like him, I talk like him, I'm loud like him, I love to laugh like him, um, I'm going bald like him. There's a lot of similarities. How many times have you met someone and you've thought, you, you know their dad and you think, well, I know who kid, whose son you are, I know who your dad is. Well, if you know the father, if you know the parent, and you meet a child of that parent, a lot of times you can get an idea of who that child is, who that child belongs to because of their similarities to the parent. If you don't know the parent, then it's just another kid. And so what John is saying here is that the world does not recognize us because it does not recognize the father. Of course, the world does not know we are here just as it knew, or the, the world does know that we're here just as it knew Christ was here during his earthly ministry. The world may even be aware that Christians worship God, but what they do not know or understand is the relationship with God. And that is because the world does not know the Father. The world does not approve of the lives of Christians. They also do not acknowledge God as the creator and sustainer of life. And if they do not know the Father, they cannot know the children. And so that's part of the problem that John warns us about, that he, he, he tells us about. Being children of Christ, being children of God is going to be difficult because the world does not necessarily know the Father. And if the world doesn't know the Father, the world is not going to know us. Christ made a similar statement about the world in John 15. It's in the Gospel of John, chapter 15. It's verses 18 through 19. It says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So John then moves on and he reminds us that the world does not know us. Even though the world does not know us, we are now children of God. In the present time, we're his children, and he reveals to us that we do not have an understanding of everything to come. Um, the verse where he starts in, in verses 2 through 3, especially verse 2 of this, is a bit of a confusing verse where he says, um, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So what John is saying there is that we don't have a full understanding of everything that is to come. But he gives us a reassurance that when Christ returns, that we'll be as he is, that we'll have the full revelation of Christ and God. We have the revealed word, but when Christ returns, we'll have the, the full revelation of his presence. And currently we're awaiting an inheritance that we don't fully comprehend but when he returns, everything will be made plain. We, we will know him uh, 
and we will know everything about him. To be like him is to be as he is in both spirit and body. And Paul discusses this in Philippians. Um, flip to Philippians 3, and um, we're going to jump around for just a minute, but go to Philippians 3. And we're going to look at Philippians 3, verse 20 and 21, where he says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. If you flip over to 1 Corinthians, Paul says something very similar in his letter to the Corinthians. It's 1 Corinthians, go to chapter 15. And it's, we're going to start in verse 50, where he says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and <clears throat> the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks to be, be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So very similar language defining that when Christ returns, when he appears, we will know him as he is, and we will be changed. We don't exactly know how. We don't exactly understand in which ways we will be changed. But John then goes on to tell us that if our hope is in Christ, we will purify ourselves as he is pure. And the hope is that we will be like him when he returns. And our pattern for purity that's given to us is the example of Christ. And the present tense of the verb purifies, it indicates a continuous process. So it's not you, you purify yourself, you make yourself holy once. But you're constantly having to do that. You're constantly having to work. And remember what he's told us already in 1 John chapter 1, that if we are to walk in the light as he is in the light, and if we continue to do that, that the blood of Jesus will cleanse us from all sins. That consistent, constant regeneration, purification that we receive through Christ is because we're walking in the light, we're righteous before him, and his blood continues to wash our sins each and every day as we go forward. We jump into verses 4 through 6 next, and they say, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. John brings us back to a contrast of what he's been talking about in the preceding verses. He, he gives us the contract. <clears throat> the contract, the contrast of failing to purify ourselves, we're given over to sin. So he says, purify yourself. But if we fail to do that, we're given over to sin. And the word translated, make a practice of, again, is in the present tense, indicating a continual, active, 
habitual like sin. And he's talking here about that sin that just eats away at us every day. It continues to just churn at us. We give our lives over to it. It becomes a master to us. I don't think he's talking about the occasional slips that Christians will have. Now, we're going to have those, and, and the blood of Christ is going to redeem us from those things. But the way he puts it here is everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. That idea of a practice of sinning is not just that occasional slip. It's that constant, habitual, it eats away at you kind of sin. And we've all faced those in our lives. Yours is probably different from mine, but I bet if you're really honest with yourself and take an appraisal of your own life, you know in your heart there is that one thing that eats away at you that you are constantly giving into. Thankfully, the, the blood of Christ is faithful to continue to cleanse us of that sin if we continue to repent and to be righteous and to live and attempt to be pure. But the practice of sinning creates lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. Um, so we have to just be very, very careful with those habitual sins um, because we know we're going to fail. Um, we're told in Romans we're going to sin and there's forgiveness there. But the ones that draw us in, the ones that take us away from Christ are those things that take the place of Christ, that become a master to us, that become controlling to us. The author gives us a very simple, uh, and he gives us a very just plain definition of sin. He defines it as lawlessness, failing to conform to the law or actions contrary to the law. The Greek word hamartia is translated as sin, and it's one that you, Drew's preached from the pulpit multiple times. It's that idea of missing the mark. To veer away from what is right, it's a divergence from what is correct and what is righteous. And the meaning of this verse reminds the reader that anyone who practices sin is a lawless person. During this time, you know, we, we talked at the beginning of this class that a lot of what John is writing this book against is false teaching. There were the Gnostics, there were other groups, that other sects that were teaching against things contrary to what the Bible said, contrary to what Christ had said. And so Paul is writing this book against these certain groups, and one of them were the Gnostics. Some of these groups felt that they lived above God's law, that they proclaimed that they had a superior knowledge of the workings of the Spirit. And they claimed that through that superior knowledge, they were immune to the demands of the law and that God did not, in their case, impute to them wrongdoing even though their conduct was in conflict with God's word, with his law. Um, they had this idea that they were enlightened that their knowledge was great enough that they didn't have to follow this list of rules and, and, and laws that were given. And we see a lot of that today. We see a lot of people that say, well, I believe God exists, but, you know, I don't feel like I have to follow everything in his word. I mean, there's some things out there. I, I'm enlightened above the law. I have a relationship. You hear that term a lot today when you talk to people. Well, I have a relationship with Christ. I have a personal relationship with Christ. and um, What I do doesn't affect my relationship with Christ. And, and, and these things were happening in the first century church, and John is teaching against it. Um, 
But what John says here is that sin is lawlessness, that it is, that it is being apart from what is righteous, and what is righteous is God's Word. And John shows that sin is just a disregard for God's law, that it's unrighteousness. And then John reminds the Christians why they should avoid participation in, in this type of sin. And the first reason is because Christ was made manifest to us to take away our sins. And in Him, who is our example, who we are trying to live like, we are trying to be Christ-like, there was no sin. Now, Romans has already told us that we're going to sin, so we know we're going to fall short of that mark. But it doesn't mean we don't try. It doesn't mean that we continue every day to try to make ourselves righteous, to try to live within God's Word. Um, and Christ's appearance is reference to His earthly ministry and sacrifice. Um, if you go all the way back to where His birth is predicted in Matthew 1, verse 21 the reason that he is told to marry um, or that this prediction is made is that he will save his people from their sins. Matthew one twenty one says, She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. So before Christ was born, his purpose was, was put there. Um, in, in the prediction of his coming birth, the reason for it is he is coming to save himself for sins, uh, to save his people from sins. And that's why we should avoid lawlessness because we know Christ has come and Christ is coming to save us from sin. Um, Paul gave a similar reminder in his letter to Titus. In Titus 2, 11 through 14, he says, For the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify to himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. So John's message is to look at your lifestyle, ask yourself, since my conversion, is my life distinctively different from where it was when I was living outside of Christ? Or do I continue to walk in that same way I walked prior to my conversion to Christ, prior to salvation? And if you're looking in the mirror and you're being honest with yourself, sometimes I think that's a hard differentiation to make. I think there's times that we look very different from our prior lives before Christ. And then I think there's a lot of times, if we're honest with ourselves, that what we look like now and what we looked like then are very similar. And it's a constant battle. Christ has defeated Satan. Christ has... Um, won the battle for us all, but Satan's still trying to take as many of us with him as he can. And in that, he battles. He finds that one thing and he picks at it. It's almost like picking at a scab. He just keeps breaking it off and causing us problems. And so when we're thinking about these things, we've got to ask ourselves, am I distinctively different? Am I following God's word? Am I participating 
in things that push this body into the church. Christ, we have given up our former ways that were characteristic of the former life we had. We no longer take part in the world in our former sins, but if we do continue in our sins, habitually turning against God, returning to our old ways, the ways of the world, then we do not have fellowship with God. And fellowship with God and a sinless Savior and a continuance in our sins are, are mutually contradictory. You can't claim fellowship with God in Christ and be living in sin. Those two things cannot abide with one another. You, you, you can't serve two masters. Um, there's really no compromise that's possible. We cannot walk in truth and lies, and we cannot walk in light and darkness. We cannot walk in love and hate. Kevin. That's, that's right. And he's allowing that to happen. You know, oh, yeah. He's allowing it way, way down in his subconscious. He's allowing that to, to justify what he's doing, which he knew was wrong. Mm -hmm. He was admitting he was doing wrong, but he'd go right back to it. That's right. And that's that same sense of when you say he's got it in his mind that he's good enough. That, that's that same sense of enlightenment that I think the Gnostics had that, that, he, that, that John is teaching against there. That idea of... I know what the Bible says, but I, I think I know a little bit better. And it's setting yourself up in the place of God, which is a scary place to be. You, you don't want to do that because there's only one God and he's a jealous God and, and he will bring judgment on the world. You don't want to have set yourself up in his place. You think of how he dealt with idolatry in the Old Testament. He's not a big fan of people setting themselves up as God in front of him. So no compromise is possible there. If we continue in our sins, we will not have confidence in that day that he mentioned back all the way in verse 2. Christ taught the importance of abiding in him in John 15. Flip to the Gospel of John chapter 15 with me. And in John 15, he says in verses 4 through 6, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. That's a pretty... Scary passage if you're living outside of Christ, if you're not abiding in him, if, you're, if you are, I guess, dancing with the devil, playing with your sins, letting sin take over your life, that's a scary, scary verse because where we abide, where we choose to make our family, 
determines where, we, where our allegiances lie. In verses 7 through 8, he says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. John appeals again to this phrase, little children. It's the church in general. And he's saying, don't be led astray by false teachers. His words have a particular reference to men who have sought to deceive the Christians of that day by alleging that it's possible to live in sin and yet still have the approval of God. Again, this is the false teaching that he was working against. Um, John insists on the principle that our actions or the fruit that we bear are a guide to our character. And our pattern, our example, Christ went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And that's in Acts 10.38. That's our example to go about doing good. What was true of Jesus, that he demonstrated his righteous nature in a life of righteousness and a life of righteous behavior, is to be true of his disciples as well. If we want to be Christ-like, we have to be righteous. We have to be good. We have to be loving. Um, If we truly belong to Christ, we should demonstrate his righteous character in our lives And John's point was that anyone could claim to have a special knowledge or an enlightened experience just as anyone can claim to be a Christian. But the test is that person's life. It's the fruit that they are bearing. The true Christian, the child of God, the brother of Christ, the one in fellowship with with both God and Christ are the ones that are practicing righteousness. They're not just talking righteousness because we, we learn how to speak the words a lot. We know how to talk the talk a lot. But the true one is the ones whose righteousness, whose words match their actions. Um, similar to what you were saying. You, you can't say, well, I'm, I'm righteous before God and be living in sin. It just it, Those two things are, are, are counter to one another. And the term translated practices is in the present tense, in the present tense again, showing an ongoing action. So the one that practices righteousness, the one that is practicing righteousness is probably a better way to say that. John in verse 8 gives us the contrast to verse 7. He says, Those who are continually make a practice of sinning are from the devil. Sin has its roots in the devil. Being the first sinner, the devil is the source of sin, yet the foundation uh, and the foundation for which it springs, the father of all who practice it. John 8, and again, we bounce a lot between the gospel and the epistle, but in in the gospel of John chapter 8 and verse 44, we see um, Christ saying, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has had nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That in and of itself is Satan. And if we're giving ourselves over to Satan, if we're giving ourselves up and over to his lifestyle, to his will, we're turning our back on the will of God. Then, as it says in um, as it says in verse eight, that 
we are of the devil. Because he says, whoever makes a practice of sinning, and again, practice there is in this, this continuing, whoever is practicing sinning um, is of the devil. And we do not want to be of the devil. Being of the devil is not a good thing. We want to be of Christ. We want to be of God. We want to be a son to God and, and uh, a brother to Christ. So John then gives us a statement of the purpose about Christ. Um, he says this in the end of verse 8. He says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So Christ came, Christ appeared to render Satan powerless to have victory over sin and death. First um, Timothy 1:10 Paul says he abolished death and through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So Christ has fought that battle. He's won. Um, that, that, that has already happened. He defeated Satan at the cross. The problem is, is until judgment, Satan still has the ability to bring as many people with him as he wants. And he does, he, he does that. He does that through lies. He does that through mistruth. He does that by changing our character, by making us think these little everyday actions that are against God's word are not that really significant. They're, they're not going to affect me. I'm still a good person. I still go to church on Sundays and Wednesdays and I go to events that they have. But that's how Satan gets us is he makes us think that sin has degrees and all sin is lawlessness. All sin is unrighteousness. And the righteous are the ones that acknowledge that sin for what it is. They confess that sin for what it is. They repent from that sin as it is. And they continually practice returning to Christ. The unrighteous are the ones that are just given over to that sin and don't work to go against it. They don't repent. They don't confess. They hide. They bury it and continue moving forward. And... and it's two contrast, and you choose one or the other. You can't have a foot in both. Choosing both is choosing lawlessness. Um, it's cut and dry, and it's a hard thing to teach. It's a hard thing to live because um, we all struggle with it. Every day, if we're honest with ourselves, we spend a lot of time with one foot in the world and one foot in Christ. But if we want to be Christ-like, if we want to be a son of God, God's done his part. He has adopted us as children. He did that through Christ at the cross. But we still have our end of that bargain, which is living righteously before him and choosing to live righteous and choosing to have that continual washing of the blood that forgives our sins. And that's a hard battle because it's an everyday constant battle and sometimes we get tired of fighting it. And sometimes we give in to the world. But only death and loss and pain and suffering is in the world. The end judgment is going to come. And we want to be there when Christ appears. We want to be as he is. So he jumps into verse 9 and 10. And he's closing out this section on being children of God. And he says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. 
By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So John, in these verses, summarizes what we've just been talking about in verses 7 and 8. Um, and then he jumps into kind of a, a transitional sentence that starts to transition us into what he talks about at the end of chapter 3. But we see him again state that you can tell to which family someone belongs based on their lives, based on the fruit that they bear. They can belong to the family of God or they can belong to the family of Satan. Um, and it's, it's our choice. Um, God, again, has, through His Son, adopted us as children, and not just us, but all mankind. Christ died for everybody. Christ redeemed everybody. We have to be willing, though, to be righteous. We have to be willing to follow God's Word. We have to be willing to live under His law, His commands, His will, not ours. Um, so we see John really starting to make this, again, cut and dry, that either you are continuing practice sinning or you, you, you don't, that you, you, you strive for righteousness and you are either children of God or children of the devil. You'll see a lot of these contrasts as John writes, where he gives you very cut and dry statements that are very, very oppositional to one another. And he, he gives us those, and he keeps doing them for emphasis, that you, you have that choice. You have the ability to choose where you lay. And then he ends this section by discussing the importance of loving our brothers, because he'll spend the rest of this chapter talking about love. But why does one born of God, refrain from sin. Because he goes into that a little bit. Um, he says in verse um, 9, he says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. And the reason being, because he says for there, he says, For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. So he says that they refrain from sin because God's sin re seed remains in him. Well, what's God's seed? What's he talking about there? Um, and I think through context and through study, you, you, you determine that the seed is the Word of God. Um, that's mentioned in Luke 8, verse 11. Um, Colossians 3.16 says, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart. The seed that he's talking about here is the Word of God. If the seed abides in us, meaning if God's Word takes up residence in our hearts, then we are better equipped to fight Satan, to win the battle against him in our lives every day. Christ has won the war, but Satan still battles with us, and we have the ability to win that battle. So if we are born of God and have His Word in our heart, we will not continue sinning, or we won't keep on sinning because it goes against what we know. It's kind of like I know that the oven, when it's on, we have a gas range. 
I guess I'll say the stovetop, when I see the little flames coming up, I know because I have the knowledge in me from experience in my life not to touch the hot flame. It will burn me. Well, that knowledge keeps me from doing something that is wrong, that is against my nature to do. And the same thing with God's Word. When we have the knowledge of His Word and we see something in our life that we know is wrong, it gives us the knowledge to avoid those things. It gives us the, well, this looks interesting. Let me dabble in it and see what's going on. It gives you the word to, hey, God said, practice righteousness. This is unrighteous. Let me avoid this. So if we have that knowledge in our heart, if we have the ability to understand what God has taught, then we can keep from sinning because we see sin for what it is. We see it as the devil's schemes to draw us away from God. So the verse talks about the previous life of habitual sin that we lead before our conversion. In verse 10, though, John sums up the whole passage by saying in this, talking about the actions that he's discussed in the previous verses, it is evident who are children of God and children of the devil. If you want to know are you righteous or unrighteous, look at your fruits. Look at your actions. Look at what you're producing in your life. Not what you're saying because words will deceive us, but we're proven out by our actions. Where our actions are, where our fruits are, tell us where we are. Um, and then finally, the last part of this verse in verse 10 is used as a bridge between pre the previous to topics, um, the righteousness discussed in the preceding verses, in the preceding verses and it's going to tie it to the relationships that we share with one another. The love under consideration in verse 10 is that which one brother in Christ should have for another. And where it does not exist, there is an absence of that divine parenthood. We're going to see in the following verses that our relationship with one another, our love for one another, also helps to define are we a child of God are we a child of the devil? And if we fail to love the members of God's family, we're excluding ourselves from God's family. And so kind of a heavy chapter, a lot of interesting things in there. Next week we'll, we'll jump into loving one another. And I think there's some stuff coming up in that, this next section that um, will step on a lot of our toes because I think we can all do a little bit better job at loving one another. But thank you for your attention this morning. You got two minutes of extra free time.